Hello, welcome to another episode of The Caring Instinct. Our guest today is Catherine Graves. Leading hypnobirthing teacher is the founder of KGH Hypnobirthing. She has personally taught KG Hypnobirthing to over 3,000 couples and KGH has trained over 2,000 teachers, a large number of them midwives. Catherine is the author of the international best-selling The Hypnobirthing Book, which has sold over 100,000 copies worldwide and has also produced a range of hypnobirthing pregnancy and birth audios. You really like this podcast, didn't you, Olga? Yeah, it it goes very personal, very quick, didn't it? Yeah. How can you talk about births without getting very personal? So come and have a listen. Find out more about Olga's journey, about hypnobirthing, and enjoy. They just wanted to say, Catherine, I'm so grateful for your book. I had with my youngest such a worrisome time, the pregnancy, for a whole number of reasons. I was very high risk and I was hearing that all the time at every fortnightly appointment. And I basically, to the point that I couldn't sleep with alarm and uh, my husband would read the visualizations from your book to me. Mm-hmm. And that was the only way I could like relax and go to sleep. He even recorded them on my phone. So if I woke up at night and couldn't go back to sleep, I would play the recording. Was that worry as a result of what happened at your first birth? No, not at my first birth. At my second and third birth, when we uh, lost oh. two babies, and so oh. I've got yeah, yes, I've got. Yeah, thank you. I've got an eight-year-old and we a two-year-old. We have an audio, especially for people who lose their babies, but all our hypnobirthing teachers really? know about it. Mm. It works. It's people say it can be enormously helpful. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. Well, we don't advertise it on the website because obviously most people who look at a website are pregnant women, and we don't really want to talk a lot about yes. losing yes. a baby. Yes. But all our teachers know. Well, hopefully they remember it's there. And I've sent it to all the birth charities. They've probably just filed it and thought it's a... But people who have used it have said it's useful. The the ones that I had in the book were very useful anyway. Good. Baby loss affects more people than we can imagine. But because it's not talked about, it's not talked about. Absolutely. And then when you're pregnant again... People say, oh, is this your second baby? And it's not, no, it's your fourth. it's my fourth, yeah. exactly. So you sort of don't know what to say, particularly if you've lost your first baby. Uh, so, and you say, no, this is my second baby. Well, where's your first one then, sort of thing. Exactly, yes. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? And you don't really believe you're pregnant until after you've come to the point that you lost the baby. That's right, um, Yeah. Yes, that's um, how it unfolded for me. This episode will have to come up with a trigger warning. Okay, so Catherine, what is hypnobirthing? I know it's often defined (laughs) as pain management. No, it's not pain management. In my experience, it's so much more than that. Because it's often lumped together with methods of pain management. But if you need to manage pain, the pain is there. So you have to manage it, don't you? But what you learn in KG hypnobirthing is if mind and body work together in the way they're designed to work, the pain might not be there in the first place. So there's nothing to manage. So it can't possibly be pain management if the pain isn't there. Does that make any sense? Yes. 
people will sometimes say, oh, it's mind over matter. And it's not even that. Mm-hmm. It's mind with matter working together in the way you are designed to work. And everything in our society and our maternity services mitigates against it. So it's a matter of not of teaching you more and more and more. Yes, we, we have all the techniques and that sort of thing. But it's much more a question of letting go mm. of the worries and the fears and the misconceptions and the preconceptions. So that by the time you come to have your baby, your mind and your body together can work in the way they're designed to work which is efficiently and comfortably. And that is a very controversial thing to say to a woman who's had a traumatic birth, or to most of society who assume that birth is going to be traumatic and painful, but it's true. It's a new idea to us that the the whole mind and body is one, is a leap of faith because we've unlearned it so effectively yes but when we emotions live in our bodies stress lives in our bodies absolutely all these things they have said the gut is the second brain haven't they there's possibly more and more realization of how you might say that every cell has a brain it's not just this thing up here it's again it's pretty revolutionary to say that a woman's body is perfectly designed to give birth if her mind doesn't get in the way. I mean, I met a little girl not so long ago and she said, mummy's going to have a baby and it's going to hurt. So what is that child going to be like by the time she's 20 or 30 and has her own babies? That is going to be so deeply ingrained into her. And fear is the most powerful emotion of all. The only thing that the government did really well during the COVID scare was to work on the nation's fears. Easily done. And the maternity services work on a woman's fears. You told me you were high risk. Um, when you say that, I don't. I think I wonder what it, what it really was. You may have been. I'm not meaning to belittle you in any way. Mm. But I do wonder. I mean, that is a terrible label and a heavy burden to bear, isn't it? It is. It really was, yes. Mm. So is hypnobirthing something that you and other founders have invented or is it something we are remembering how to do? There are loads of people who who claim to be the first hypnobirthing teacher. I don't think we know who was. Uh, we were certainly the first in the UK and it has evolved all the time because I learn more, new evidence comes out, new research comes out the mums I teach feed back to me, the other teachers I train feed back to me. I think this is the very best course. Well, I would do, wouldn't I? Yeah. But um, I don't think it's as good as it could be because it's, it is and should be evolving all the time and becoming better. And it's hugely important. And the difference it makes, I mean, you just read the book, but you, if you'd done the course, it would have been even considerably more significant Uh, And it makes a massive difference, is all one can say. It's not just, we do all the things that you would expect. You know, we do breathing and relaxations and the visualizations which you mentioned. And they're all really good and they work well. As long as you go into labor before 40 weeks. Because 85% of pregnancies are longer than 40 weeks. 85%. And then, 
Yes. Wow. It's crazy that we consider pregnancy to be 40 yes. weeks. Or, or women who come to our course, we always say, put your due date, which is a fallacy anyway, and a harmful fallacy, two weeks later. Because that's, uh, somebody said, do you mean we should lie to our nearest and dearest? No. What you're telling at the moment is a lie. What we tell you is far more likely to be the truth. Because we think that the average length of pregnancy is about 41 and a half weeks. We can't say for sure because so many births are induced now, either by sweep or by a medicalized induction. Mm. Uh, but we really don't know how many births or how long a spontaneous pregnancy would be. Probably about 41 and a half weeks. And yet every woman is, has massive stress and pressure applied to them, huge amount of fear-mongering from at least 40 weeks and possibly before. And that, what that does, it triggers the hormone adrenaline. That's the fear hormone. When we produce adrenaline, it inhibits the hormone oxytocin, which is the hormone of calm and the hormone of love and the hormone you need for the body to work efficiently giving birth. So as long as you're frightened, you're very much less likely to go into labour because you're not producing the hormones of birth. The trouble is the pressure that women are put under because their pregnancy is a bit longer then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So then people say, oh, well, we need to induce you because you haven't gone into labour. And why did that become necessary? Because of the fear that was applied to them in the first place. Awful, isn't it? And then you've got that horrible <laughs> word overdue. Terrible word. I remember. Uh, I really remember that period as well because our first daughter was two weeks uh, late, I think, and it, it, it's exactly how you said it. We were really hung up on that date. It's crazy, and it's interesting. I mean, inevitably, you use the word. She was two weeks late. She yeah. wasn't. Yeah, exactly. She yeah, came yeah. at exactly the right time. Yeah. When people tell me that their baby's late, which you often see on the internet, I always reply and say, late for what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not only is it a crazy concept, but it's a harmful concept. We in KG Hypnobirthing have a completely different concept because I know women will start calling me and messaging me, what can I do? And I always say, well, what do you feel like doing? Um, you know, try this, try that. Oh, for heaven's sake, stop the trying. Um, and we have a brilliant concept uh, for women who's for the last part of their pregnancy, beyond 42 weeks, which of course is most women, we call this bonus time. You have been given a bonus, a few extra special days when you can do whatever you like. If I'm teaching a group um, and I have a, a couple of, maybe a second time couple in the group of mostly first time couples, yeah, and I say, well, you can read the books that are piling up on your bedside table. You can have a lie-in. You can go out to a movie or a meal in a restaurant with your partner. All things you will not be able to do without a great deal of organisation and expense for many years to come. This is a bonus. And the idea is to change their hormones and then they're more likely to go into labour. And we suggest that they book themselves a treat every single day. Don't just think about it book it. And it doesn't have to be a lot of money. It can be just 
meeting up with a friend for a cup of coffee as long as she promises not to ask if there are any signs of baby coming. It might be something that costs a little bit more, like some reflexology, not trying to make the baby come, but just because it helps you chill. It could, as I said, be going out to a meal in a restaurant, or it could be having a home date, getting in a takeaway and watching a movie on Netflix. Anything. But as long as she has not just thought about, but booked a little treat for herself every single day, from 40 weeks to 43 weeks. And then she'll be terribly disappointed when the baby arrives and she has to cancel her treats. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I remember you advised to watch happy movies. Yes, happy movies. That was my favorite part. So my youngest was born uh, the morning after we watched You've Got Mail, I think. One thing I steered clear of was anything with a depiction of birth because... Oh, definitely that not. That is... So I can't, can you? I can't name a movie or a show where it's a happy and peaceful occasion. Well, it would be boring, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be good drama. It would be very boring. Mm. And even a benign series like, for example, Call the Midwife. And the midwives are pedalling around the east end of London on their bicycles, waving to the dockers or whatever. But if there are three births, at least two of them will be with something having to call him a doctor or it's a breech birth or something. Because it, otherwise, if you showed physiological birth, it would be boring. It's not good drama. So you're not going to show it. So I'm not <laughs> surprised that little girl thought it was going to hurt. Yes. If the television was on, it's a, at any point, there's bound to have been a birth on it. There's bound to have scared her. Also, yes, because most people, you know, we're not having sisters and cousins who have babies every week. Uh, most people's knowledge of birth comes from the movies. It's, it's funny because they have no other point of reference. Now, if you went from Midwest to America, you wouldn't expect to see cowboys and Indians having a shootout just because you see it on the movies. But when it comes to birth... You do expect it to be that because you have no other point of reference. And it's simply not true and it's harmful. Uh, women need good information and they don't get it. Hmm. They even, I mean, they even get scaremongering from their caregivers. And it's not necessarily the fault of the caregivers because they're frightened. They're all afraid of litigation. And they want to be seen to do absolutely everything they could. And then they're safe. Mm. <laughs> and there's no time to explain anything to women. For example, when you had your baby, did anybody explain to you the risks and benefits of a scan? No. Nobody does. They probably didn't even know it themselves. I have never seen a hospital that explains to women the risks and benefits of a scan. Now, I am not saying that scans are terrible things, because all these things have their place, but they were started without any evidence or research at all. And you can't do the research now because people expect to have the mm. scans. And more and more evidence is coming out about the harm of scans, which is not to say they don't have their benefits and are, have, and are good too. But how can a woman 
give informed consent if she hasn't been given the information. Possibly even because her caregiver doesn't know the information. So every scan for a pregnant woman is illegal because she hasn't given informed consent. And that's, that's just an example of many, many other things. I don't believe there was research before they started giving vitamin K. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't research before they started clamping and cutting the cord immediately. And there are loads of other things. They do ask now, they do ask these questions now about the vitamin about K the cord. and the cord. Yes. They ask if you want it, but they, do they give you a proper explanation? Exactly. They, they rely on you having done your research here. Were you in labour at the time that they asked? No, actually, that was the community midwife asked that as part of the That's birth wonderful. plan. Mm. Yes. But I'm not entirely convinced that she would have given you good information. She may have done. Some do. I'm not saying that nobody does. Yes. More likely in a community midwife than um, in a hospital where they're not busier, but they're under different pressures. Did you have your baby at home? No, in the hospital. Oh, when you said the community midwife, I thought maybe that you were planning a home birth. No, with all the risks that I was hearing about all the time, I was feeling much safer in the hospital. And actually, there was a wonderful team in the hospital that I was very attached to, and I felt really safe with them. And I'm very grateful to them. In fact, my youngest is named after my doctor. Oh, wonderful. I think if you've lost a baby, they are give you more time and are more supportive. I think that can be, they can be very good under those circumstances. In fact, that doctor, that particular doctor had been with us through the uh, two baby losses oh. and she was partially the one who gave me the courage to try again and who said, I will be here for you and who gave me the number of your secretary and who said, just contact me directly. Fantastic. She was absolutely fantastic mm. and I loved her. I really did. They tried, uh, but then, they, as you know, the NHS is under such horrible pressure that to get mm. continuity of care, which is so important. Yes. Why is it important? Because because it's a relationship. Mm. Because we we like we we get attached. That's who we are as human beings. We 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 want to be cared for, and the midwives the doctors that's that that's why they became midwives and doctors to care mm. and then they juggle everything around and you can't see the same person and in fact i was seeing a consultant that was that that just left me in tears within three minutes of talking to him mm. and i had requested from now on to only see the doctor that i loved mm. No matter, it, it, it might have meant that I would come in um, at odd times or I was very happy to adjust my schedule because it was so hard to get hold of her. And they were saying to me, but he's more senior than her. He's got this and that, I don't know, extra qualification. And I was saying, I don't care mm. because she cares about me and, and I want her. <laughs> you know? This was so important. And I wonder, actually, one thing, one risk I find 
And it's both in if you believe in a natural birth and you follow hypnobirthing course, same as if you believe like we do in parenting that is uh, built with the awareness of the attachment forces at play with the with how children develop naturally how they're meant to develop if you believe these things and if you want to practice these things then you are going against the grain the risk of that is that you might start to isolate yourself because as you've mentioned your parents in-laws cousins friends will be asking so when are you due so when is the baby coming so when is well, surely it's best to have an induction because then at least you know and you're in safe hand, hands. They mean well, but because there's so little awareness in the society, they will be putting pressure on you and you will try to possibly isolate yourself from it at the time when all you need is a team and as much support as you can get. How can we bridge this? We need our people. Well, it's well known, isn't it, that there's evidence that you get the best outcomes from one-to-one -one care from a known midwife or obstetrician. There is no doubt about it. There have been very initi various initiatives trying to achieve that. Mm. None of them have worked because it's quite difficult on the NHS. Curiously enough, the health services in New Zealand do achieve this. Okay. You contact your midwife at the beginning of your pregnancy and she supports you all the way through your pregnancy, which is interesting. So it can be done. How do we achieve it? What that, that caring relationship? As I say, the thing that mitigates against it is fear. I mean, lots of people who have done my course, either with me or with the other teachers I've trained, if they have a question, they'll contact their hypnobirthing teacher mm -hmm. because we have a personal relationship. Uh, the midwife, as you say, they see a different one every visit. But also we give them the information they need. Uh, we go through exactly how their bodies work, how the muscles work, how the hormones work, the practice they, they need to do, how they should plan their birth. A birth plan that most people do is just a wish list. Oh, I'd love, like this to happen. You plan any significant event to get what you want. You may use advisors who can give you some extra information, but you plan. People don't plan their birth. What they call a birth plan is generally just a wish list. I rather hope it will be like this. Well, you don't go like that on holiday. You think, oh, I'd quite like to go to a warm country, but I'll go to the airport and get on the plane. Um, and I rather hope it'll go to somewhere that I would like to go. But I know the, pa the pilot's well qualified. <laughs> it would be crazy, wouldn't it? Um, so we need to plan. We need to talk about exactly how we do that. And then we go through the whole of birth. Uh, oh, and the other, how do we deal with, with this? We tell everybody to t um, tell everybody their due date, if they must say one, a fortnight later. Mm -hmm. or about the end of a month, or, or whatever. Never, ever, ever tell anybody a due date. Never, ever, ever ask a pregnant woman her due date. I always say, I might ask how many weeks she is. I might say, when might your baby put in an appearance, or something like that. 
but all the people we train tell their friends and relations a fortnight later, because most of them are covered by that anyway. Um, so it's more realistic. And most people don't remember the first time they said when that due date was. And if they did, uh, you just say, oh, I had another scan. Wonderful what you can find out from these machines these days, isn't it? Yes. And put it a fortnight later. Because after all, the first due date came from a scan. And if you look at the date from that the 12-week scan against the date that you may have worked out for yourself, the date from a scan is almost always, not always, but very frequently earlier yes. than the date you worked out for yourself. Therefore, the hospital will take the scan date. Therefore, they will be pressurising you for an intervention when you might only be 39 weeks, according to your own calculation. And that happens for the majority of women. <laughs> to kind of take us back to the beginning, when did you start to realise that we've gone away from, that things weren't as they should be? I, I came to this... I'm not a midwife, yeah. I'm a hypnotherapist. Mm-hmm. And like in many professions, you have to do a bit of extra training each year to maintain your registration. So one year I couldn't think what to do. And a colleague said, well, I did this hypnobirthing training. You might be interested. So, I mean, basically I went along. I thought it'd be quite nice, but with no special interest. I was absolutely blown away by it. And I offered it as part of my hypnotherapy practice. And over time, relatively quickly... It took over, and that was 20 years ago, and the whole of my life has been governed by it since then. You see, I didn't find hypnobirthing, it found me, uh, which has just happened. I think it's quite funny. Sometimes I will train a whole room of midwives to be KG hypnobirthing teachers, and they're all medically qualified, and I'm not. But I am qualified in what I'm teaching them, which is quite amusing. And also, something that came to mind... If you use the word hypnobirthing, it's meaningless. It means nothing. It's like saying, I drive a car. Well, is it a Lamborghini or a Mini? As soon as you say that, they'll say, well, what sort of car? But they don't say that about hypnobirthing. And it is not the same. You read the book, and I'm glad you did, and I'm very glad it made a difference to you. Had you done the course... I would be almost prepared to swear it would have made a greater difference to you. Some people will offer a short course, you know, just an afternoon or something. And you can do some lovely relaxations. But you cannot find out about birth in that short time. Ours is 12 hours. It is evidence-based. It is logical. And it takes you through the whole process. If you've just done a few relaxations, it's great if your baby arrives sort of 40 weeks or earlier. But as soon as the pressure mounts, Mm -hmm. if you haven't got the tools to understand what's going on and how to deal with it, then it may not be quite so good. (laughs) So if I'm talking about hypnobirthing, I always say KG hypnobirthing because all courses are different. And I honestly do believe RS is the most thorough not just because I would do, because I advised it, but because other people who've done other courses have told me that. But you need for whole course to have a really effective, successful birth. You really, really do. Because it works and it's so important, not just for you, but how your baby enters the world. Your birth, it affects you as a mum, 
My goodness, that's going to affect your baby, isn't it? The most important event in its life. And therefore, it needs to be a positive experience for your baby, as well as for you. It affects the partner too. And uh, partners have a lovely role in hypnobirthing, haven't they? Brilliant, yes. Partner is very important. The problem sometimes with dads is they tend to meddle. Uh, the number of women who've come to me and said, oh, I'd love to have my baby at home, but he doesn't want me to, is quite large. And I've had conversations with dads about this, and it's fear again, f probably fear of the unknown. But by the end of the course, the woman might come to me and say, you know what he said when we went home last night? He said, have you ever thought about a home birth? I said, oh, that's a really good idea. Because a dad's role is not to tell her what to do. She knows instinctively and perfectly what to do. Most certainly to be used as a sounding board and that sort of thing, but not to tell her what to do. But his role is to protect her, to keep her in this positive bubble, keep out all the negative birth stories, any negative input. Um, his role is to protect her, to help her have the conversations which can be negative with an obstetrician, to make sure that during the birth uh, there are no interventions that she had said she didn't want or make sure it is as she wanted. And that is a massively important role. He is her protector. And it's what men traditionally are, and they're really, really good at protecting. Um, and in a way, they come into their own when it comes to that role in birth. And certainly doing the course together brings a couple closer together. I see it all the time, and it's very, very lovely to see. And I'm sure it um, deepens the bond of the father with his child, because he knows he's been a useful part in how that baby entered the world. Massively important, quite simple, but very profound. Beautiful. That is a beautiful design. It is. To watch it is mm. very beautiful. I remember one couple, she called me up before the cast and said he won't come. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, single mums come on their own. It is absolutely no problem. In fact, next weekend, I'm going to teach a class and she's a surrogate mum. And the biological couple are coming as well as the surrogate couple, which will be rather lovely. So everybody can be on the same wavelength. Anyway, this particular mum called me and said he won't come. Fine, no problem. But she showed up with her husband looking morose. And during the, the course, he sort of softened and we had a little chat. And after the course, she called me again and she said, I don't know what the magic you wrought was. Well, it, it is magic. Or it seems like magic, the outcome of this course. She said, but um, before we went on the course, he was saying, load of middle class nonsense. He'd be not, you know, you expect me to do that sort of thing. And she said, I tried to persuade him to come. I tried logic. I tried pleading. I tried tears. And then I shouted at him. <laughs> so no wonder he looked a bit fed up when he arrived. Anyway, when they got home that night, he said, you know, there's a lot of sense in that too, which there is. Everything we say is logical. And then the most beautiful thing of all that she said was, and that night we made love and that was the first time for four months. So talk about bringing a couple closer together. It was just so beautiful. And you can see it as they practice for relaxations in class. I mean, you feel a bit silly doing one of these relaxations for the first time. 
and the husband or partner is reading it for the mum. And then they do another one and it sort of begins to get more natural and he's got his arm round her. And by the third one, they're snuggling up together on a heap of cushions on the floor. And you can just see how the work we do brings a couple closer together. Brilliant. Wonderful. But certainly both are part of it. Because in the world we live in, we were talking about continuity of care. The only person who gives continuity of care is the dad or the partner. Um, it may not be medical care, but that's the person who is there for her throughout pregnancy, throughout birth and beyond. And that's the person she knows and loves. And that's massively important, hugely important. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> it is, I am such a fortunate person. There can be nothing better to do with your life than work in this way. Um, I'm just privileged. It's just how I view it. It's wonderful. Mm. Oh. Can we talk a bit, <laughs> please, about this bubble in which many cultures believe... Positive bubble. Positive bubble in which a pregnant woman needs to be held. Now, I remember, I'm from Ukraine, yes. I remember when my mom was pregnant with my sister, my grandmother was always saying, don't say anything that will upset her. She was telling everyone yes. to not upset the pregnant woman. Mm. Now, that's completely mm. lost She's right. uh, now. But there's wisdom in it, isn't there? Well, the people who upset her most are the maternity mm. services who are supposed to care for her. It's appalling. Um, the tools that we give to a woman to help her remain positive. In the first place, as you, you may have found on the, in the book, there's an audio that you can download, which is relaxations, positive statements, all that stuff, to listen to each night as you go to sleep. And that has a cumulative effect. The effect becomes more powerful every time you listen to it. And the purpose is then to listen to it, have it just playing in the background when you're actually giving birth. So there's that. We also have four or five relaxations that the partner can read to the mum, one each night before she goes to sleep. Uh, we have the breathing and we have a notice that you can stick up on the wall, which says, I'm just trying to remember the exact words, but it's something like only positive birth stories, my baby's listening, but that's not quite the right word. Um, but it's true. Because people delight in telling negative birth stories to a pregnant woman. It is appalling. I sort of ponder on why they do it. I think there may be two reasons. One is they've had a traumatic mm -hmm. birth themselves. And it's therapeutic to them to tell other people about it. Now, it is undoubtedly true that somebody needs to listen to them. But not another pregnant woman. That is harmful. And I think the other reason is that when she says she's planning a, a natural birth, because of her own experience, they think she's being awfully unrealistic. She needs to know what it's really like. But since they don't know what a KG hypnobirthing birth is really like, they don't know what they're talking about. So that's one of the roles of a partner is to stop them and the mum learn to say no. Learning to, saying yes is so much easier. It feels more friendly than saying no. But People who do that is harming a pregnant woman and they need to be stopped. You mentioned the words overdue. Words are so powerful and we need to start to notice them more. And it's often the little words that we don't notice. 
it's things like try. I'm going to try to make my baby turn. I'm going to try to make my baby come. Well, if you ever use the word try, it implies stress. And if you're stressful, that baby is never going to come. If, mm, like that, whatever you want is not going to happen. That's an awful word. We've talked about late being a terrible word. As I say, late for what? Just is a, is a dangerous word too. If somebody says, just hop on my couch and I'll do your sweep. It usually means that they want to do, do something to you which is more significant than they want you to realise. It's the little words that sneak in without being noticed, which are the most harmful of all. And the words we say to ourselves in our heads. You know, how often do we wake up in the morning, look out in the, of a window and it's raining, which is a fact, and say, isn't it an awful day? Well, if you live in England and it rains a lot, if every time it rains you say it's going to be, it's an awful day, you're going to have a lot of awful days in your life. It's your choice, but it's not the happiest way of going about living. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't face up to reality. Of course we do. You know, you take an umbrella or a raincoat. I have this picture sometimes, well, at the moment, they're threatening us with snow in the north of England. The worst snow I remember once hearing is in Cumbria. And I just in my mind had a picture of a little boy of about eight in Cumbria jumping up and down saying, this is the best snow ever. So it's very largely a matter of the words we use and the interpretation we put on it. Facts, yes, even if they aren't easy facts, we need good facts. But we don't need to put a, um, a negative interpretation. Allowed, we're not allowed to do that. Oh, terrible word. Mm -hmm. A woman is allowed to do whatever she likes. She will probably, if she's sensible, which she is, listen to the advice and experience of her caregivers. But it's her choice. I'll just make an appointment for you for... No, you won't. You'll ask me if I would like an appointment. Every single intervention, the guidelines say, is offered. You can accept or decline. There is nothing that a woman has to do. One particularly bad one, I mean, it's so easily done. Um, a midwife told a mum, among other things, that she had a back-to-back -back mm -hmm. baby. Not the end of the world, but she said, your baby is mm -hmm. in the wrong position. Now, if you tell a woman there's something wrong with her baby, it's about the worst thing you could tell a pregnant woman. It will be going round and round in her subconscious. Oh, there's something wrong with my baby. My baby. What's wrong? But if, if you say, it's a back-to-back -back baby, labour might be a little bit longer, and this is what happens, and this is why, fine, you deal with it. Something wrong with your baby. That's nasty. That's putting a negative interpretation on a fact. Even if may, it may not be a fact that you particularly want, you still need a straight fact and straight information, not a negative viewpoint on it. Uh, the wonderful Mary Cronk, who was a fantastic midwife who died a few years ago now, uh, positions like being back-to-back -back or breach, a presentation like that, she would always describe as unusual but normal, which is a much healthier way of looking at it. Unusual but normal. Yeah, it's about the frequency. Absolutely. Breech babies are only about 4%. It isn't, mm -hmm. isn't usual. 
but it's another variation of normal. What is it about agency, though? You, you are both therapists. Please tell me that I had a high-risk uh, pregnancy and I had gestational diabetes, and there was so there were so many things they were telling me. You bet. Telling me to do and what I was allowed and what all I wanted was agency. I remember seeing this consultant who said it was quite late in the pregnancy and we were goodness it it was scary but we were fighting this 38 week induction and we did and my baby arrived Jeez. naturally on his due date <laughs> three hours before his scheduled induction clever so, clever baby <laughs> indeed he knew a thing or two didn't he yes i did talk to him yes quite <laughs> this one consultant in a in a carousel of medical professionals you see in our uh, crumbling healthcare system and he actually, maybe he was just tired, but he sat there and said, so Olga, what do you want to do? And I remember looking at my husband, and he asked me what I want to do. Yay, here it is. <laughs> All I needed was agency in this really stressful, this really threatening mm. situation. So you said that you were told you had gestational diabetes and then got the label high risk mm. as a result. The wonderful obstetrician Michel Audon, who started birth pools, um, described gestational diabetes as a diagnosis looking for a disease. Wow. Was it late in pregnancy you were told you had diagnosis of gestational diabetes yes. or earlier on? Late. late at 28 weeks is when the test is done. Well, you see, these late tests have been introduced relatively recently. And what naturally happens is that your blood sugar level rises towards the end of pregnancy because your baby needs the extra energy ready for birth. And then you go above the gestational diabetes cutoff point. Mm. It's perfectly natural, perfectly beneficial. And then you're told, oh, you might have a huge baby. So we've got to induce you early. We've got to. You'll have to be. And words like that. I don't know how far you were over the point that they say this is gestational diabetes, but you were probably something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, if you have uncontrolled type 1 diabetes that is going through the roof, yes, that's dangerous. But a woman who tests a couple of points over what is generally considered to be the cutoff point towards the end of her pregnancy, actually her body's working perfectly normally, there's no risk at all, but my goodness, the pressure you get put under on account of it. I don't know how many times um, you told me you had a high-risk pregnancy. You didn't. That was a label you got. And I know it's very, very difficult once you get that label. And unless you have somebody to explain to you what it means, which you probably won't, unless you've done our course, then you're frightened. That That is so curious, Catherine. Uh, you will love this. Um, my eldest was born in China, in Shanghai. And well, I also had oh, elevated blood sugar. And the doctor who uh, looked after me took a completely different approach. All he ever said oh. was, you've got a slightly raised blood sugar. You might have something called gestational diabetes. Walk for at least an hour a day or do your yoga, whatever you like. And don't eat much chocolate or mangoes or bananas. I was quite angry about that. That was all he said. Because you like chocolate and mangoes and yes. bananas. <laughs> he monitored me. He looked at the results and, and he was very reserved and said, hmm, okay, 
Just keep doing what you're doing. I never knew the numbers he saw. I never understood the numbers he saw. Uh, he held it all to himself. Now, here in England, we have a completely different approach. Because of, as you mentioned, being afraid of litigations, you know everything. Even if the risk is 0.01%, right. you will hear scary mm. words. Your placenta will give up. You, you will hear it, it all without the mention of how infinitesimal that risk is. Mm. So mm. my Chinese doctor really was creating that positive bubble around me. He was probably worried, as I think in hindsight, I was not. Not very much. Mm. Mm. Yes, if you're told you have gestational diabetes, I don't use the word diagnose because I don't think it is a diagnosis. You're just told you have it because of, because of a reading. Um, but when you get sent to the gestational diabetes nurse for advice on, on your diet, well, the advice she gives you is pretty basic probably the diet that you were eating anyway because you're an intelligent person and if anybody wasn't eat, eating that diet you know if they're eating nothing but burgers and chips and chocolate and drinking coke uh, then yes it's a good idea they've been to that to that nurse but for most people she just talks about the diet that you should be eating anyway and probably a lot of people like you are she doesn't t tell you anything which is extraordinary. I think the Chinese doctor was much better. I mean, we all know we shouldn't be eating chocolate in pregnancy. I'm not sure we're Do quite we? so well informed about mangoes or bananas. Actually, bananas are brilliant in labour because you get, oh, what is it you get from bananas? Potassium. Potassium, that's mm -hmm. it. I'm so sorry. Yes, really good in labour. Uh, but that's not to say it's, that's not the same as in pregnancy. For parents who are listening to this episode and thinking... I've had my babies now, but I wish things had gone differently. I wish I had done a KG hypnobirthing course. <laughs> Maybe the birth of my child would have been happier. What can you say to this person? We have an audio that they can buy off the shop, which helps relieve birth trauma if they had a traumatic birth. It does work extremely well. I, it's one of the ones I like best. Lovely one to use if your birth didn't go as you hoped. That's very good. If they are a new mum and have recently had a baby, we have another audio which is called For a New Mother, which has one track uh, to help a new mother on her very much changed journey in life because now she has a baby. There's another one about breastfeeding and there's another one which a lady with seven children asked me to, to record about how to calm down when you're all sort of in the hurly-burly of life. It's a lovely audio. Um, people, I think when they have their baby, they sort of forget what they've been told. But it can be incredibly useful. Those are the things that we offer. The only other thing you can say, well, have another baby with KG hypnobirthing and it'll be so different. <laughs> I see. But actually, some of the skills we teach are life skills. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're designed towards birth. Of course they are. But they're skills that you can use for the whole of your life. In the calm breathing that we use during birth. You know, use it every day if you can remember. I don't remember as much as I would like to. Uh, but I do tend to remember 
when I'm lying in bed at night. And also, because I live in the country, I need my car to go anywhere. And when I sit, sit in the car, put my key in the ignition, and somehow that triggers a memory. And I sit there and I do three of the breaths. And all the sort of hassle and bustle of getting out of the house and what I was doing before just goes, ah. And I can start afresh as I go out. So everything that we do is, of course, geared towards birth. And they are also useful life skills. I'll look out for those audios. And the final question. Catherine, what do you do for play? What do I do for play? Hypnobirth. KG, hypnobirthing. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to do. It makes me so happy. It's your work and your play. Yes, it's wonderful. It is just simply a privilege. Mm. It is fantastic making that difference to people's lives. I do play tennis once a week. Mm -hmm. I play the piano, but I haven't had much time to do that recently because I've been totally rewriting part of the course. But I've got my piano there and it's lovely. It's my friend. There is a freezing cold lake in the village where I live and I'm one of a small group of mad people who plunge into it every Sunday morning and then I go home and have a hot bath or shower. Uh, it's a wonderful experience, but my goodness, it's cold. Do you stop in the summer? The um, half method. No, 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 no. But it's just not quite so cold. <laughs> it's pretty cold at any time of year because it's fed from springs. Mm. I love skiing, but I haven't been able to go skiing this year. And I have a wonderful family. I have four children who are now grown up and six grandchildren who I really don't see as much of as I would like, partly because one of them lives in Australia. I regard myself as an extremely fortunate person. You're busy and happy. Yes. Are you busy and happy? Yes, I do the care and instinct for play, so, so I get it. Yes. But work and play together. Quite. And I'm always learning more. In the world I work in, there's always more to learn. And that's great. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was so special. Thank you, Catherine. It is a great pleasure to come and talk to you. Thank you, Olga, and thank you, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much.